uh, a pastor in Berkeley, California. I'm um, the RUF campus minister for UC Berkeley, which is our denomination's college ministry at, at that school. Cool. How do you like working with college students? I love working with college students. Um, I'm getting used to going to In-N-Out at 10 p.m. at night to feed them, but uh, they're great. I love it. Yeah, that's good. What's maybe just something uh, that's just been a joy for your ministry? This this is your first year there. Yep. And yep. Uh, what's been just maybe a, a blessing from God this last year? Yeah. So um, I, I just moved up to Northern California, Berkeley, in July of last year, and. Um, Berkeley, by its reputation, it precedes itself. It's a very secular um, uh, place where not a lot of Christians, especially at college. Um, but so one of the joys was I had the joy of, of uh, also baptizing a student in October, um, someone who did not know Christ before and, and became a Christian. Um, and it's just an encouragement to me uh, that God um, loves Berkeley and loves the people there and, and wants to call uh, people to himself there. So that was really, really encouraging. Good, good. And so, uh, some of you know we had Presbytery, which is our you know regional gathering this last Friday, which brought you out here. Um, and we also went skiing, or you would snowboard and skiing on Thursday. Yep. Uh, which was more fun, Presbytery or skiing? <laughs> uh, skiing was a little bit more fun, but um, pre- Presbytery was also great to like. Um, see a bunch of uh, so Utah and Northern California. We're in the same Presbytery, so it's nice to get to hang out with uh, brothers I don't see as much. So. That's very politically correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. We're glad to have you here uh, preaching for us, and I'll turn it over to you. Thanks. Thanks so much, John. Yep. Um, well, good morning, everyone. It is my privilege to share God's word with you all this morning, and our text today will be from Isaiah 45. Um, we're going to read the whole chapter. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn there. If not, I believe the text will be on the screen. Um, but this is Isaiah 45. This is God's word. Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God." I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. 
I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved for all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This is God's word. Would you pray with me one more time? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the power it has to change lives. And may your words today, by the work of the Holy Spirit, encourage us, comfort us, and empower us in this year. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, so we are a month into 2023, and I'm not sure how you all are feeling about this year so far. Uh, some of you may be excited. Some of you, uh, January went well and you're looking, you're excited, you're looking forward to what the rest of this year will bring. Some of you maybe are planning on having a child. Maybe some of you are planning on getting married. Some of you maybe are excited to graduate elementary school or middle school or high school. Some of you are prepared to get a new job. The possibilities of 2023 are endless and you can't wait to see what's in store. Now, others of you, maybe a little bit more like me, and a little bit more apprehensive about this year. You're a little worried. Maybe you follow the economy and you're, you don't like where it is. Maybe you are nervous and worried about the political landscape. Maybe your relationship with your spouse or your significant other is not going well. Maybe your finances are not where you want them to be. Maybe your health is deteriorating, and you're wishing that this year will be a lot better than the last couple years, but you do not dare get your hopes up. Well, as we go through the rest of this year, all the next 11 months, with all these emotions, with all this uncertainty, I thought we'd be encouraged to look at something, or rather look at someone who we know we can trust with absolute certainty. And our text here is Isaiah 45. It's an encouraging message from God to the Israelites. And it comes to the Israelites who have experienced miserable year after miserable year. The context of Isaiah 45 is that Israel has been in exile in Babylon. 
They have been suffering. They have been stuck in that situation for decades, and they want to get out, but it seems to just getting, to keep getting worse. It's gotten to the point where some of the Israelites have started to question if God has forgotten them, and maybe they should look to other things, to other idols instead of God. Maybe that's a little bit how you're feeling like today. Maybe last year has been so miserable, you're thinking, what is God doing? Why is God allowing all these terrible things to happen to me? Is God still in control? Does he still remember me? Should I still put my trust in him, or should I look to other things instead? Well, God encourages the Israelites in our text, and I pray that he also encourages you today that he has not forgotten you that he is still in control. God reminds us who he is today, that he is the Lord and there is no other. And so we must put our trust in him. And that's, that's my main focus today. My main focus is because God is supreme over all other false gods, we must turn to him to be saved. Because God, because our God is supreme over all other false gods, we must turn to him to be saved. And we're going to look at three things about God that I pray will encourage us in this year. And the first is God is our sustainer. Second is God is our creator. And third, God is our savior. God is our sustainer, our creator, and our savior. So first, God is our sustainer. We see from the very beginning of this, of this text, God is going to sustain his people Israel. Right? God tells Israel he's going to free them from the exile in Babylon. He's going to use a man named Cyrus to do that. And you see the language God uses starting there in verse 1. He will use Cyrus to subdue nations, to loose the belts of kings. All the way to verse 13, he will use Cyrus to set his exiles free, to set his people free from Babylon. God is showing Israel he is in control, that the powers of this world does what he wills, that nations and kingdoms rise and fall at his bidding. And if there was any question as to who was in control, if Cyrus, for example, thought for a second that it was under his power that he was crushing these nations, look at the language God uses here in Isaiah 45. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze. I will give you the treasures of darkness. And why does God do all those things? So that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. God is telling Israel that he is the one who sustains them. He is the one who is watching over them so that they may know that he is God, that there is no other. There is no other who can command and control the destinies of this world like he can. And the reason God is placing so much emphasis that he is the one who sustains Israel because, as I mentioned, Israel has started to doubt God's control. They've been in exile for so long They've started to think maybe their God is not as powerful as they thought. Maybe instead they should look to the gods of Babylon. Maybe Babylon is more powerful because Babylon right now is in control. And so God has to remind them. And you see in verse 20, for example, God scolds them. He scolds them for caring about wooden idols, idols that cannot save. They're praying to false gods that cannot save. 
None of the idols can declare what God has declared. None of the idols can cause something to God, cause something to come to pass like God can. And there in verse 21, God stresses again, it was I the Lord who told and declared all these things long ago. There is no other God besides me. Hopefully you heard that phrase over and over and over again in our passage. I am the Lord and there is no other in our text today. And God is hammering that truth in the hearts and the minds of the Israelites. And he is doing that because he wants to remind them he is supreme over all other gods. There is no point looking to other idols because none of them can sustain them like God can. Well, what about you? Have the last few months, has the last year, has the last few years caused you to doubt God's control and his sovereignty? Have you started to put your trust in other things instead of God? Or maybe it's not that you don't trust God, but maybe it's God and something else. Maybe it's God and science. Maybe it's God and the government. Or maybe it's something more personal. Maybe it's God and your job. Maybe it's God in your education. Maybe it's God in your bank account. Maybe it's God in your family. Maybe those other things that God has given you, good things that God has given you, have risen to become the level of idols in your lives. God is reminding here in our text today that none of those things come even close to them. He is above all those things. He controls all those things. None of them can predict what is to come. Only he is God. He is the only one that sustains us. Now, this truth should comfort us. This truth should encourage us. And you would think that the Israelites, after they heard God give them the good news that he is going to free them from exile, that they would be ecstatic. They'd be excited. We're going to be free. We're going to go home we're not, going to be able, we're not going to be under the control of Babylon anymore. And yet it's interesting. Interesting that in verse 9, God has to issue a warning of woe to Israel. It seems as if Israel, instead of being excited about God de- delivering them from exile, instead of them being excited about this good news, they're not happy still. They are still questioning God. And the reason, the reason Israel is not as enthusiastic is because of how God is going to deliver them. If you ask any Israelite how they would want God to deliver them from Babylon, they would say, we hope God raises a powerful Israelite political figure that would overthrow Babylon and take us back to the days of like King David where we ruled ourselves, where we're under our own control, where we're free from the oppression of other nations. An Israelite should deliver us. But instead, God's chosen way of deliverance does not fit the way that they would have wanted to be liberated. God is using a man named Cyrus who is a Persian king. And that means he is a pagan. That means he's not an Israelite. And in verse 1, God even calls Cyrus his anointed, which is a title used only for people like King David. And so some of the Israelites might have been offended. Some of them were probably questioning, is God jumping ship? Are the Babylonians now going to be God's chosen people instead of Israel? And so God has to warn them, who are you to question me? Does the clay speak back to the potter? Does creation strive against its creator? 
If we truly believe that God is sovereign over everything, then we must believe that God is big enough to use whatever person or manner or method to bring about his purposes in our lives. Maybe you want God to shake up the economy. Maybe you want God to change up the political landscape. And who knows, maybe God will do those things. But what if God changes up the economy not in the way that you expected? What if God shakes up the political landscape but not in the way that you want? Will you still submit to his sovereignty? Will you still trust that he cares for you? Will you still trust that he has you right where he wants you? We ultimately see God's plan to sustain and to save us through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, into our world, something we celebrated just less than two months ago in Christmas. And again, God sent Jesus not in the manner or in the method that you and I would have expected. You and I would have expected the Savior of the world to be born in a palace and raised a king. But God's ways were higher than our ways. The incarnation was a shock. The virgin conception was a scandal. Jesus' death on the cross was an embarrassment in the eyes of the world, and yet that is how God chose to save us and sustain us. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged that the Lord is your sustainer, that he is the only one who knows what will happen and actually can make those things come to pass. He is a perfect plan for you. It is a plan that you might not expect. It is a plan that you might not even want. But God is telling you this year, my plan is better than you think. So first, God reminds us that he is our sustainer. But secondly, he reminds us also that he is our creator. If it wasn't enough encouragement that God sustains us, that he controls all the circumstances around us. He also reminds Israel that he is the one who created all those circumstances in the first place. There's a lot of creation language in this chapter. I don't know if you picked up on it as we were reading. And some theologians have said that this chapter is like a commentary on Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation account. We see this in verse 12 and verse 18. God reminds Israel that he made the earth, created man in it. It was his hands that stretched out the heavens, and he again reminds Israel in verse 18, after he declares how he formed the earth and made us to inhabit it, he reminds Israel that he is the Lord and there is no other. No other idols or gods can create like God did. In fact, those other idols are made from things that God created, like wood. Right? Verse 20, wooden idols. There is no comparison. God is supreme over all things because he created all things. Now what's especially fascinating though about God's declaration here as our creator is a statement he makes in verse 7. If you look at verse 7 with me, we're all familiar with God creating light. We're all familiar that he creates things good, but look at what God says about himself in verse 7. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is emphasizing here that he created everything. Every part of creation, the darkness alongside the light, they both exist because of God. Now that probably does raise a question. What, what is God actually saying here? 
Is he saying he created evil? Like, how does this tie in with our theology that God is not the author of evil? Well, it's important, again, to remember the context of this passage, right? God is addressing the exiled Israelites in Babylon, and he is reassuring them of his supremacy. He is reminding them he is the master of creation, he is the master of history, that the Babylonian gods do not hold a candle to him. So what God is doing here is he's using language to give further proof of his divinity. God is saying here, that the exile happened because I declared it. I created this calamity because you broke my covenant with you. But if I'm the one who created this exile for you, then I am the one who also has the power to end it. I am not the author of evil, but evil is not outside my control. That is how supreme our God is. And I know it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. We don't often think about God as our creator in terms of these terms as one who also create darkness and who create calamity. But we see this ultimately again fulfilled in Jesus when he was crucified on the cross by our guilty hands. Later on in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, the prophet prophesies about Jesus saying that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's will to crush Jesus. The apostle Peter says the same thing in his, in his letter. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God created the ultimate calamity of crushing his son for you and for me. And if you believe that, and if you trust in that, then no matter what disaster comes your way, no matter how difficult 2023 may end up being, you and I have hope. We know that our God who creates all things, including the darkness, will ultimately deliver us out of that darkness and into his marvelous light. And that leads me to my last point. God, our Savior. God sustains us. He created us. He caused the greatest calamity of crushing his son for us, all for a purpose, and that's to save us. We see God identified as our Savior multiple places in our text, like verse 15, verse 17. God is identified as the Savior, saves his people with an everlasting salvation. All the proclamations of God's might and majesty culminate in verse 21 when he says he was the one who planned all these things. It was he who declared all these things come to pass, and he does all those things because he is the Lord. He is a righteous God, a Savior, and there is none like him. So again, here at the end of Isaiah 45, God declares how he is supreme over all other false gods because he alone can save. Verse 20 tells us how the other gods that people were praying to cannot save them. In fact, not only can those gods not save them, but they become burdens. Right? Those people have to carry, physically carry around those idols. Right? Notice, th- these people, they're carrying their idols. They're not being carried by th- those false gods. And God is saying, look at those other gods that you trust in. Look at how useless they are and how burdensome they are. How can you compare me to them? 
Now, most of us in America, we probably don't, we don't even see physical idols really, let alone carry them. But are you carrying around other gods in your lives? Have you replaced God with other things? Some things that I've already mentioned. Maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your self-image. Maybe it's your family, your marriage, your relationships. All good things. Those are all good things that God has blessed us with. But if we make those things idols in our lives, they will ultimately crush us and they will ultimately kill us. Compare that with our God. Our God does not become a burden to us. He doesn't make us carry him. Instead, he carries us, doesn't he? If we serve a God that we have to carry, that leads us to our destruction. But if the one true God carries us, that leads us to our salvation. And again, we see that ultimately come to fruition in Jesus. Jesus wants to carry your burden. Pastor John mentioned earlier that Jesus is the one who tells us, come to him all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give us rest. Jesus carried the burden of living a perfect life for you so that you would be clothed with his righteousness. Jesus carried the burden of bearing your sins on the cross, a death that you and I deserve to die. And then Jesus rose from the grave and he was ascended and carried into heaven. And just like that, you and I will one day also ascend and be carried into heaven and dwell with him forever. That is who our Jesus is. That is our Savior and there is none like him. Because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done for us, every knee shall bow, every tongue will swear allegiance to him. Right? Notice those words were described about God in the end of verse 23. And Paul takes that phrase and he applies it to Jesus in Philippians. Philippians 2, this is what Paul says about Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul saying that everything here in Isaiah 45 that has talked about God, we can apply it to Jesus. Jesus was there in creation. Jesus continues to sustain us, and ultimately Jesus is the one who saves us. Look at some of the verses that say about what God will do in this passage and apply it to Jesus. Right, verse 17, it is in Christ that we are not put to shame. It is in Christ that we are saved with an everlasting salvation. Verse 24, it is in Christ that we have righteousness and have strength. Verse 25, it is in Christ that we are justified and shall glory. Jesus is our righteous God and Savior. There is none like him. And in light of all those truths, we must do what verse 22 says there. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. For those of you in here who like making New Year's resolutions and one month into 2023, you already need a new one because your New Year's resolutions did not pan out. Well, I encourage you to make this your New Year's resolution. If you're not a Christian here today, please consider turning away from whatever it is you are trusting in will get you through this year and turn to Christ. 
Turn to the only one who can save you. And if you turn to him, if you trust in him, he will carry you to salvation. And if you are a Christian here today, continue to turn to him. When life gets difficult, when 2023 throws you even more trials and tribulations, when you are tempted to look at something else other than Jesus, Remember that Jesus is the one who created you, that he is the one who sustains you. He is the one who will carry you through that storm. And he is the one who will save you. Right? My prayer for all of us this year is that you will have a great year. I genuinely hope that 2023 will be a lot smoother than the last couple of years has been. But even if it isn't, Remember that you have a Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ who is like no other. Turn to him this year and be carried. Turn to him this year and be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are a month into 2023 and many of us are already weary with this year. Many of us are anxious. Some of us are lost. Some of us are full of weariness. But Lord, we know that last year happened just as you appointed, and this year will also go according to your plan. You know if for some of us, this year may be our last. But you also know if for some, this year will be the year of our conversion and coming to have life in you. You know all the trouble with which this year will bring that will burden our hearts, but you also hold in your hand all the blessings that shall come to us. Therefore, Father, help us to remember to turn to you this year, to turn to your Son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who created us, who sustains us, and who will carry us to our salvation. Jesus, you are our Lord, and there is no other, and it is your name we pray. Amen.